Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward. I've been looking forward to this hour for at least at least a half hour. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> uh, I've got Rick and Jonna in studio with me. So how fun is that? Hi, Bill. Hey, Rick. Hi, hey, Jonna. Bill. Yeah, so you're all red. I, I <laughs> <laughs> it was just a really yeah. Let's be honest. You thought about it 30 minutes ago uh, no. and got excited. <laughs> no, it's it's fun. I love, I love when you guys come in. And I know, uh, Rick, you are on the road quite a bit. And you hear a lot of questions when you do apologetics and stump the chump. And uh, you've brought three of those very critical questions to the table today. And the three of us, mostly you two, are going to discuss them. Yes, uh, they might be called cultural apologetics. Okay. So when I'm out on the road at college campuses, I don't get as much anymore about does God exist, uh, some of the classic uh, apologetics questions, but these cultural apologetics that pe- touch people's heads and their hearts. So we're talking about uh, patriarchy talking about uh, Old Testament violence, talking about slavery in the Bible, those kinds of things. Yeah. They seem to be coming up a lot more than they used to. Interesting. All right, let, let's get started then on one of these three critical questions, and then I will let you guys have at it, okay? <laughs> so what do you say to the person who thinks the Bible supports patriarchy? Well, I think if we zoom out just a second before getting into the individual issue itself, uh, that, you know, the the Bible is written in its own context, and we have to take it on its own terms. And so the Bible was written in a patriarchal culture. <laughs> so I think one thing John and I want to say is the Bible didn't cause patriarchy. <laughs> the, the Bible was written in a time and place where patriarchy was assumed and the bible then works on patriarchy and works on these other issues uh, a little bit at a time so one of the authors i read on this as a philosopher his name is paul copan and copan he uses the word uh, incrementalism in other words the bible and therefore god works on these social issues that we're talking about today incrementally he works on them a little bit at a time so you never see the magic wand kind of being waved over some social ill in the Bible. Rather, God works in and through people, and he he goes at their pace. I mean, one of the lines I use when I'm out on college campuses is that God works at the speed of humanity, not necessarily the speed of deity. Uh, He's the one who's acting in and through this play, this drama that's being carried out on the human stage. And yes, at any time, he could come in and just snap his fingers and boom, everything could be changed. He chooses not to do that. He takes the play kind of on its own terms because he's the creator. He's the author of the play. So it's his prerogative. So instead of solving these things with one fell swoop, uh, he works in and through them gradually. And you 
might even say, and I don't want to push this too far, but you might even say, I mean, God is a, a gradualist most of the time in the Bible. Not every time. Sometimes the Red Sea parts, okay, that happened instantaneously. Sometimes the Son of God rises. That happens right away. But a lot of these other issues we're going to talk about today and ones similar to them, he is a gradualist. And if we keep that in mind, I think it will help us have more realistic expectations of what to find in the Scripture. That's really good, uh, Rick. And I think that um, as you're thinking about that, so what we're looking in the text is how is the biblical text responding to patriarchy? And for those of you that maybe are just pausing and like, okay, what exactly is patriarchy? That basically means the male domination of a society so that... um, Power and decision-making is placed in male hands and is protected there. And what we find, interestingly, in Scripture is that there are a ton of checks on this power. And so um, I'm just going to quickly name three of them overall. Um, when, uh, When children are told to honor their parents, I just want you to know that that would have been shocking in that culture to be told to honor your father. Now that's standard operating procedure, but to say to honor both your father and mother Mm. elevates the woman's role in the family in a whole countercultural light. Um, The Bible holds um, uh, men accountable for the treatment of their wives um, in fact, there's a scripture in New Testament that says, you know, be at peace with your wife and or God won't hear your prayers. I mean, there's this serious um, men are held accountable for the treatment of their wives. Again, very countercultural. Um, God's directive in Genesis 2:24 that marriage should be between one man and one woman. Again, we are like, well, duh. That would not be a duh. No. <laughs> in, in the, the ancient culture. world. No, in the ancient world. Right. So some of these typical sort of patriarchal abuses in that world where fathers ruled over their families as sole authority, there was the abuse of women and wives in the household, and men married multiple wives. Immediately, Scripture is checking all of this um, sort of the excesses or the pain that patriarchy can create. Yeah, I, I think Israel is a serious major upgrade for the <laughs> life of women in the ancient culture. So if Moses wrote around, I don't know, 13, 1400 BC, something like that, imagine the pagan nations around Israel at that time and the treatment of women yeah. in those cultures versus, and it starts right off. That woman is also created in the image of God. Shocking. That is shocking. Absolutely shocking. So in Babylonian culture, you've got the Enuma Elish, (laughs) which is the Babylonian creation myth. And men and women are created, they they slaughter the god Tiamat, (laughs) the god of the sea, and they take her body parts and create the world. And then out of that, they create men and women just to be slaves of the gods. They're not created in their image. They're just created because the gods are lazy, and so they create men and women to do their work. Then you come to Genesis. Oh, my goodness. Men and women created to be in the image, the very image of God. How radical is that? The dignity, the honor. Yeah, Mm -hmm. second millennium B.C., 
ancient Near East, that's incredible. Yeah, and in that Genesis story, the differentiation between the sexes is really about reproduction. It's not about governance. It isn't that we're trying to figure out who's the boss to keep things running here. And in fact, dominion is a mandate given to both Mm-hmm. the um, man and the woman, and dominion is meant over the animals. There's no discussion of dominion between man and woman until we get the Genesis 3 narrative where yeah. there is a fall. And I always want to say, I want you to know that at the fall, when God describes the dominion that men are going to have over women, he's not telling that to Adam as a mandate. <laughs> he's telling that to Eve as a heads-up mm-hmm. warning. Mm-hmm. And that what we're, especially post-crucifixion and crosses, we're not trying to redo that dominion mm-hmm. uh, breakage that happens at mm-hmm. the fall. Hey, Bill, this is your show. You can say something. <laughs> no, I'm listening, very, I'm listening very carefully. And I'm taking some notes along the way, Yeah, just so you know. I mean, Jonathan, when you had referenced uh, that passage out of 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect But then Peter goes to say, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of this gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Right. So he's describing the spouse as the weaker partner. And in particular in that culture, there wouldn't, that, again, that would, that's not shocking yeah. because women were. They had very little legal status. They often were housed, kept in their homes, unable to, I mean, they truly are if you want to use the word, the vulnerable partner here, they truly are the vulnerable partner. And we just know that God's heart moves toward the vulnerable. So it's this clear sign of the men. I'm recognizing in this culture that women are vulnerable and know that there is a special accountability for how you treat them in that vulnerability. And you have the assumption then of Christian and Jewish households which were expected to be led by men. And if a woman lost her place in the household, it's what's out there for yeah. her? That, I mean, not a lot. Right. So the protection of uh, family was a very important role for the head of the household, and that's an assumed social structure in that society. Which is a perfect lead-in to the teaching of Jesus that we find in Matthew 19 about marriage. That, again, I think we just hear this and we're like, ho-hum, you know, gee or gum. But what, what's going on here is so radical. Uh, Jesus says, he's quoting the Old Testament, that the man is to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And I just want you to know that every man in that room would have just had their jaw drop, not because it wasn't in Scripture, but because that was not the cultural custom. The woman left her family and went to the man's home. He would go make a room for her, and she would move into his house, be under the authority of his family. And what Jesus does here is radically reverse that, creating immense protection for the woman. So now the husband is living with the wife's family. She's protected from spousal abuse. I just want you to imagine um, living. I'm just thinking of my husband living uh, with my older brother and how protective my older brother is of his little sister or my father. Like he's living in that household with these other men. And any polygamous tendencies of, um, of men would be severely checked here obviously, because they can't keep living in other women's homes. Like, they have to go and make their home with one wife. 
it's just really it is a it is a potent teaching of Jesus that radically protects women. And I just don't think we hear it because we just breeze past that without understanding. The and culture. along those same lines, the uh, the teaching from Jesus here that gets us back to Genesis two twenty four: a man right. shall leave his father and the two will be united and they will become one flesh. So you've got one man and one woman. So it starts off that way in scripture. <laughs> then there's the fall. Then Jesus and Paul in Ephesians 5, I want to say, give Mm -hmm. or take, uh, retrieves that same scripture. Now, in between, you've got some messiness. You've got polygamy (laughs) in the Old Testament. You've got concubines in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got some train wrecks in terms of marriage fidelity in the Old Testament. And yet when we arrive in the New Testament, that stuff is to be done away with. Mm -hmm. Those were wrongs that were accommodated for the time being, but the ideal as we're moving more and more toward it in the New Testament is summed up here by Jesus when he said, look, folks, yeah, we can talk about divorce. We can talk about these other things. But if we're going to talk about what marriage really is, it gets back to Genesis 2.24. That is the template. And that plays into this uh, patriarchal system as well, because a man really is responsible then uh, to be the uh, husband of just one woman and can't just do as he pleases. Right. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Rick Matson and John Afonce. Uh, we're talking about how to respond to three critical questions. These are ones that Rick has largely accumulated through his uh, last several years of ministry and uh, his time on campuses. And uh, what do you say to the person who thinks the Bible supports patriarchy? Now, we're going to move on after the break to what do you say to the person who would never worship the violent God of the Old Testament? Be right back. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. So glad to have Rick Matson, John Afonso in studio. We're talking today about how to respond to three critical questions that um, Rick had generated. And first question we talked about was, uh, what do you say to the person who thinks the Bible supports patriarchy? And now we're going to talk about what do you say to the person who would never worship the violent God of the Old Testament. <laughs> Go ahead and uh, answer that, Rick. I'll I hang was going to put it back in listen. your court. <laughs> just, tell, just tell them what you think. That's actually what I usually say when I get out at the University of Michigan. I go, well, I know this guy named Bill Arnold. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> well, I think this first gets back to the character of God. Who is it that we're worshiping? The first thing that we know about God is that he's loving and he's good, embedded in in the idea of a loving God is that God is just. So God uh, loves us. He created us. He has uh, a design for us. He has a vision for our lives. And when we fail him and turn our back on him in that relationship and turn our back on that vision, then he is very patient with us. He communicates with us. He does. He goes to great lengths to bring us back to himself. He's long-suffering. But at some point, his patience runs out and he will act decisively, even violently, against sin. So you see a bunch of examples of that in the Old Testament. One of the first ones is Genesis 6-6, where 
God uh, maybe anthropomorphically says he's sorry that he created humankind on the earth. Whatever sorry means there, a Bible scholar can talk about that. In any case, God wipes out humankind except for Noah and his family. So we shouldn't be surprised then later in the Bible when God acts violently and decisively against sin when it has come to its fullness. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not sitting up there like a uh, some celestial uh, cop just, you know, looking for people to Write the smallest violation yeah. so he can send down a lightning bolt. <laughs> On the contrary, I think sin saddens him. He mm-hmm. grieves over sin and he wants us back. He wants us to walk in the way of life that he has designed for us, which is really the best in human flourishing in that relationship. And then at some point when the people who go astray, and the Canaanites are one of the big examples later in the scripture, when the sin of the Canaanites, they're called the Amorites sometimes, reaches its fullness, then he sends his people in. And it's really God who does the damage here. It's God who does the destroying. Yes, the people of God are his instruments, but it says pretty clearly in the text, I'm the one who drove them out uh, before you. Well, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you think, oh, now God is just God of love. He's really nice guy. He's peaceful. That was the Old Testament violent God. No, 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 no. Two huge examples in the New Testament of God's acting decisively and violently against sin. One would be Jesus at the cross. And you could say probably that the Old Testament violence in God's acts against sin in the Old Testament are summed up Hmm. in his act against sin through the Lord Jesus on the cross. Now, that's a violent act. Instead of punishing the nations, he punishes his son. The other one in the New Testament where you find a lot of violence is in the book of Revelation, which theologians tell us is a kind of summing up of the whole Bible. It's a, it's a summary statement of what's been happening in this uh, apocalyptic form. So you do find violence in the New Testament. It's of a little bit different form, but it's still there uh, in the New Testament. But it's always acted out against sin gone crazy, sin gone too far, sin gone beyond retrieval. And uh, that's what we find Oh, that's so good, Rick. And, you know, I think about um, nonviolence, which is something sort of near and dear to my heart. And what's true is, as Christians, any nonviolence we have is really empowered by the fact that we believe that God is a just God, that we leave justice in God's hands. And so we can let go of justice. We can offer grace and mercy because God's the one that will set this all right. And so I always say, we're nonviolent, but that doesn't mean that God is nonviolent. It means that maybe God is anti-violent. Like he doesn't like violence. He doesn't want to use violence. It's always, like you said, it's right. the last, last resort. resort. It's exactly. way longer than yep. any of us would let yep. human beings go. He's way more patient, way more desiring repentance than anybody else. But in the end, things will be made just. They will. And in a violent world. That often means violence. Yeah, and sometimes he chooses a different route. So you find Romans 1, where the people had fallen into sin in gross ways. Instead of acting violently, God releases them to their own devices. It's almost as if God is saying, okay, well, have it your way. 
your punishment is that I'm going to let you indulge yourself. And how horrible is that, that God releases his hand from people? Uh, He's done intervening. He's done interposing. He's done reinviting. I mean, in some ultimate sense, there is the reinvitation. But for the time being, (laughs) uh, Paul's letter to uh, the church here at Rome talks about how God is essentially withdrawing his hand and allowing them to uh, go their own way. And how scary would that be? So we can call that natural consequences. A lot of, I feel like, what is broken in our world is the natural consequences Mm. of us choosing not God's way. Mm -hmm. Though it feels really dark and violent, Mm -hmm. it's what happens when we won't align with God or align with God's ways or Mm -hmm. accept his kingdom, his rule and reign in our life. I have another big Old Testament example, but wanted to see if you wanted to jump in here. No, go ahead. Okay. Well, one of the main Old Testament examples that people bring up is the wiping out of the Canaanites. So let's just do a little theology here on the Canaanites. It says in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, look, you and your people are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And during that time, I'm going to be waiting for the sin of the Amorites to come to its fullness. Now, after the sin sin of the Amorites, which is a rough synonym for the Canaanites, okay, comes to its fullness, I am going to act decisively against them by bringing you and your people, he's talking to Abraham now, by bringing Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt and the suffering that they've endured, back to Canaan. And God is going to use the people of Israel to punish the Amorites because their sin has come to its fullness. But he is going to wait an additional, well, depending on how you do the time frame here, four to five hundred years. And in the meantime, he is sending the rain on the just and the unjust uh, and they are indulging. You have there. I mean, you've yeah. got this witness. You've got the witness. Within the land. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you've got nature as their witness. There's so many things that communicates to them that idolatry and child sacrifice and all of the things that they are doing that are against God now rising up to their uh, epitome. Finally, God is going to act against them and he's going to act Violently, but in the meantime, he has been patient with them for, you know, hundreds, yeah, of years. hundreds of four to five centuries here, and then when he finally does act, uh, many of them are uh, wiped out. Now, there's other things going on in that uh, setting as well, and that is, uh, they're not all wiped out. It appears that they are, and then you can read scholars about things like uh, warfare rhetoric, where it says early in Joshua that they're all wiped out, and then later in Joshua, they seem to reappear. (laughs) And so uh, sometimes you have hyperbole and this warfare rhetoric. You were using the example when we were talking earlier, like the Vikings slaughtered the Packers. (laughs) And so maybe some of that's going on here. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more with uh, Rick Manton and John Afonso. We're talking about uh, three critical questions. And when we come back, we're going to finish this discussion, and we're going to move on to the person who thinks the Bible supports slavery. We'll be right back. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. 
Welcome back. Talking to Rick Matson, and John Afonce. We're tackling some pretty tough questions. I think, uh, Rick, these are questions that you've sort of accumulated over the years uh, talking on college campuses. And these are the kinds of questions nowadays people are asking more than the others. In InterVarsity, we do these sessions called Stump the Chump around the country. I'm usually the chump. And so students can come and ask any question they want about Christianity and I'm supposed to get them thinking with my replies, and we get these questions about patriarchy, slavery, Old Testament violence, kind of these social issues uh, that we read back into the Bible. Students have questions about them. Well, on the issue of slavery, sometimes the objection is we know what modern-day African slave trade looks like, and all of the history, the horrible uh, treatment of uh, black people and and the injustices of that, and then and then then we see slavery in the Bible, and we remember that there were Christian slaveholders, and it all becomes a package. It's it's bundled together, and so the objection then is that the Bible promotes slavery, and it promoted it so much really that you ended up with the African slave trade. So there's a cause effect there, and I guess we'd want to dive into that a little bit and and try right. and parse out these yeah. things and deal with them one at a time. So the first thing is to admit how horrible the African slave trade was. Make no uh, apology about that, and then secondly, say whenever Christians were slave owners in that particular system, they were off base. <laughs> And Christians, I mean, we hate that as much as as anyone else does. And they were mishandling the text. I think we can all say that. And, and so, be grateful that there were many Christians that were in the abolitionist movement. Yeah, they were the heart. Exactly. They were the heart of the abolitionist movement. Yeah. But you are right. We need to own that the Bible was used. Yeah, the Bible was misused. <laughs> misused. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And so a biblical correction on the misuse of the Bible was Wilberforce and then <laughs> much later Martin Luther King and so forth. And it's this whole idea of the dignity of human beings created in the image of God decimates any idea, any justification that we might have of slavery. So then as we look back into the biblical text, we can start to talk about that. And maybe you can take a little lead on that. Yeah. So I think we want to start out by really defining some of the difference between the slavery that we're seeing in Scripture. And as you said, the pictures we have in our heads about um, and the history that we have around the African slave trade. I want to let you know that slavery um, between Israelites was was economic. It was always debt-related. I want to remind you that there was no banking system. There were no credit cards. Like, if you accrued debt, there had to be a way to pay off your debt. And one of the ways to do that was to sell your labor that's coming so that um, you would put yourself as a slave and maybe your whole family in order to pay off a debt to a creditor. And um, those were limited. They were limited to um, six-year chunks of time, and then everyone was set free. Um, It was voluntary. It was something, I mean, nobody would want to do this, but you had the choice to do this. You weren't just someone saw the color of your skin and you became a slave. That was not what was going on here. 
And there was no being born. There was no Jew born into slavery. You were not born into it. You would, you would, again, think of it economics. This is a way of taking out a loan to try to pay off debt. Sometimes the phrase indentured servitude is used to describe these relationships, much different than the African slave trade. Right. In fact, um, Exodus um, actually makes illegal the stealing and selling of human beings, which is what was done in the African slave trade. And in fact, in Deuteronomy in Israel, it was illegal to return fugitive slaves. So if you had fugitive slaves, run, you were never supposed to turn them over to their masters from other nations. So it was uh, it was definitely a sanctuary state um, for slaves. Yeah, slaves were given Sabbath rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they were given li- limited ownership of property. Uh, when slaves were released after that sixth year, they were supposed to be given possessions and means to go back and restart mm-hmm. their lives. I mean, that is a whole different system than what we think of in the Americas, in, uh, in colonialism. And so I think it's really important for us to make a distinction here mm. between biblical servitude and contemporary uh, slave tra- trafficking. Uh, we, we've got to do that. And as we respond to people, I think it's important to point out that difference, but also fully a- acknowledge the horrible injustices that were committed in in modern times. Right. And I would even say, you know, then because of our banking system that that this need for even indentured servitude is gone. Right. We don't even do that anymore. Um, it it isn't. It, this is no justification for any kind of slavery. And I, but I do want you to think about, especially when we come into the New Testament, this Christian community, slavery is assumed in the Roman Empire. This is not something this Christian community has power over. And in fact, to lead any kind of slave revolt, as we have like the big story of Spartacus, leads to slaves on crosses in mass, hundreds of crucifixions. This church is like, how do we deal with slavery in our community that is a core foundation of the empire we're living in. And there's some really beautiful stuff here. Um, Slaves in the church were seen as equal. They were beloved sisters and brothers. There was no hierarchy between slave and free. Um, in fact, slavery is noted as an evil in both both First Timothy one ten and Revelation eighteen thirteen. So even in the midst of the empire, they dared to say enslaving people and slavery is one of the bad things the Roman Empire does. Um, there is this there is this um, incremental. Yes. Um, Gradualism. Yeah. Uh, uh, eroding. Eroding. Of this institution. A chipping away at this mm-hmm. institution without solving it overnight. So if we can zoom out again for a second mm-hmm. and say that the sovereign God could swoop in here at any moment and eliminate the whole institution of slavery. He doesn't do that. He calls a people to be faithful to the way of the gospel and the kingdom of God inside the context of the Roman Empire in the New Testament. He doesn't obliterate that. <laughs> and the ideal is in Revelation. It's not in uh, Rome at, right. at this time. So we're still working on it, in other words, in the New Testament. Right. And then you can project that forward into the church as well and say, well, yeah, they were still working on it. They chipped away at that institution. They uh, sought 
justice between uh, peoples. Mm-hmm. And we should be doing the same. Yeah. And I think if you want a book that kind of really unfolds this picture most decisively, I'd encourage you to read Philemon because it is the sending of a runaway slave, Onesimus. Paul is sending a runaway slave back to his owner. Back to Philemon. Yeah. And Philemon hears some of the commands and the calls that Paul really has there, which is that he is not to treat uh, Philemon like he is a runaway slave or a return slave, but he is to receive him as a brother in yes, Christ. Yes. There's these really, it's this profound shift as Paul really advocates for this new believer who did run away from his master as And then a you get the consummate statement of that, or one of the consummate statements of that in Galatians 3, where mm-hmm. it says there is neither slave nor free, <laughs> and then it talks about some other categories as well. And then the closing phrase there is, but we were all one in Christ. Really? Slaves and freed men and women? Nowhere else in the world would that be. Nowhere else in the world would that be true. In the Roman Empire? Not so much. And so that's the vision that we're aimed at here. What about this verse from Deuteronomy 15 that says, take an owl and push it through the earlobe into the door Mm. and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Well, first of all, how much work can you do when your ear is stuck to a door? Oh. <laughs> right? No, this is a piercing of the ear. If you can think about the little earrings I'm currently okay. dangling in front of you, that's what's going on. It's a sign. So what I want you to know is this is an instance where a slave is being freed. The six years has come. Six years has come. He's freed. But what he says is, I like this here. I love yeah. my master. Yes. I love this household. I don't want to be freed. I right. want to remain here. And this was actually by saying, go to the doorpost. That actually was just a sign of we're moving into the community. Mm. So the community can see, and it's this little piercing mm-hmm. of the ear that says this person has chosen to be my slave. So I'm not breaking the law. I'm not in defiance of any of our slaves. This, this person has now become an honored and permanent member of our household. And it's the external tangible, visible symbol of an internal reality Mm -hmm. that this person has chosen to become part of this household on a permanent basis. It's a wedding ring. (laughs) But in this case, it has to do with uh, serving uh, a master. Right. In Exodus 21.5, but if the servant declares, I love my master and my (laughs) wife and children, I do not want to go free. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now that's an amazing... Uh, picture of what slavery could have. Like yeah. at times, there would be slaves that would actually say, "This is great. This is this is my best life." Right Relative here. to the treatment of slaves in the <laughs> pagan nations of the or ancient in, world, in the African oh, yeah. slave oh, that's, experience. That's all that. Now there is a little bit of different category here, and that is foreign slaves who are brought into Israel. And mm-hmm. maybe one of the first things to be said there is when. Uh, <laughs> When a victory is had on a military basis, now you've got all these people. What are you going to do with them? Well, you can either kill them or you can enslave them. There's no prisons. There's no just setting them free off on their own to build up another army Mm -hmm. to rebel and attack us uh, four months from now. And so they became slaves. And the rules are a little bit different for Mm -hmm. foreign slaves in Israel than they were for Hebrew indentured servants. But even at that, if you read those texts carefully, the the foreign uh, people now living among them are treated much better 
than other slaves are in the ancient world of these pagan right. nations. So it's a, it's a big upgrade, but it gets us back to this idea of this incremental gradualist approach to solving these social issues in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then projected into the church after that. Nicely done. If you have questions or comments, let me know what they are. We'd be happy to address them. 877-933-2484. Rick Manson, John Afonso are my guests. We'll continue our discussion of these three critical questions after a short break. We'll be right back. We're done. Lord have You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have John Afonso and Rick Manson here in studio with me. We're talking about some tough questions. We've, uh, if you missed any of this, I highly encourage you to head over to myfaithradio.com. You're going to want to hear the podcast. Responding to three critical questions that we've covered so far. And I think now I'd like to talk about another question that pops up. And that is when you've been hurt by the church. Yeah, I get that a lot. I bet. <laughs> Because uh, I work with uh, teens and 20s mainly, and that's a generation that has left the church in droves. Sometimes when I hear the reasons that they leave, uh, I scratch my head. Other times it's I, I can understand how they feel at least. Uh, sometimes I ask them, well, <laughs> what is the your understanding of the Bible that has been so repulsive to you? And then they'll explain that. And I go, well, that sounds repulsive to me too. I mean, that's not the view of the Bible that I hold, or what's your view of God or of church leadership that's been repulsive to you? And they'll talk about it. And then I'll say, well, that's the kind of God I wouldn't want to be around either, but maybe we can have a conversation about what I think is the true God of scripture and the tradition, if they're open to that conversation. Uh, But uh, maybe there's some things we need to say before we get into the apologetic here, John. Maybe there's some pastoral words and just some caregiving that we need to uh, put out there for folks. Yeah. Extend ourselves a bit. Right. Well, they have opened up to you that there's pain there. Mm -hmm. And so I do think it's a really good idea to listen to their story, Mm -hmm. to hear, well, tell me what happened and to empathize to be deeply sorry, to shake your head, and, I mean, to to really go there. And when they're ready, when they know, when they believe that you really care, you know, um, to be able to kind of do the, um, so I just need to check in with you about this. You know, are you holding the church to the same standards as the rest of your life? Like, have you ever been hurt by a coach or a doctor or your parents or a teacher or a gas station attendant or like, and the answer is yes, of course we have. Uh, All of us have been hurt by someone, but that probably hasn't led to our totalizing and saying, well, that's it. I'm never going to go to another teacher again because I had a lousy teacher or I've had a doctor that I thought just sucked and they were mean. And I, so I'm never going to go to a doctor. I heard about doctors in the media. Who, that, yeah, who are, who are cruddy. Yeah, and, yeah, who engage yeah. in malpractice. Therefore, I'm all not, doc- yeah, all. So it's this totalizing that I kind of want to gently say. In fact, Scripture tells us that we're a fallen world. And the church is 
the now and not yet kingdom of God. It is, and, and you ran headlong into the not yet part. You ran headlong into a place where you need to be apologized to and, 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 um, you know, repentance needs to be delivered, but, but don't walk away from all of the church because of that. Instead, just like you would, if it was a doctor or a teacher or anything else, go find another source. (laughs) Maybe let's talk about where are you living? Let's see if we can find some good churches in that area. Because what's happening to you is that one bad experience is robbing you of the body of Christ and the experience of the community of the church, which at times is very painful, but also is like one of the best parts of Christianity. My best friends in the universe are Christians and they're amazing. And I don't want that taken from you because this one place screwed up. Don't give extra power to the offender here. The person who is off-putting to you, who hurt you, you're now... They had power in the first place. Now you're giving them even more power by allowing them to drive you out of the home that God has for you here. Right. And as you listen and hear, and, you know, and again, you have to be gentle here because it depends on how dramatic exactly. it, it does is depend. and how raw it is. Just remember that you're there. I mean, you've stepped into that place and you can be a healer. You don't have to twist their arm and to come to church with you the next Sunday. But you're there to speak words of healing you're there to help mend and soothe and, you know, um, help them understand, here's a Christian sitting in front of me that isn't treating me the way that I've been treated. Yeah. I would say 90% of Christians in history, this is a big statement, <laughs> are good people, humble. Uh, they serve in local churches. They're doing the work of God quietly. And then there's 5 or 10% that you know, act out and do it badly and end up in the media and, you know, all sorts of things happen, but there's a disproportionate attention paid to the 5 or 10% who who screw things up. And I just want to say, you know what? 90% of us aren't like that. We're just humble people quietly doing the work of God. Do you want to join us? I mean, we would love to have you here. We're missing your voice right now. Mm-hmm. When I was speaking to the middle schoolers at Salem Covenant Church the other day. <laughs> Which is church, where I'm a pastor, by the way. You're a pastor over there. And I was scared to death of these uh, 15 middle schoolers. Not the Stanford students I spoke to the other night on Zoom, but middle schoolers. But one thing I said to them is people leave the church, but Jesus hasn't changed. So in Colorado, there's a thing called Pikes Peak. <laughs> we all have heard of Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak never changes. If you believe in Pikes Peak, great. If you don't believe in it, it's still Pikes Peak. If you walk away from it, it's still Pikes Peak. If you get mad at Pikes Peak, it's still Pikes Peak. Jesus is the Pikes Peak of the Christian faith. He will always be there. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you're mad at him or not, mad at his people or not, hurt, not hurt, it doesn't matter. He is still there. None of that changes. So... I sometimes wonder when people say, well, I don't uh, believe in Christianity anymore. I kind of want to say back, well, Jesus hasn't changed. Do you no longer believe in Jesus? And what grounds do you have for that? The church present, the early church presented us with this portrait of Jesus. And that's what we've held for 2000 years. Do you somehow understand that in a better way than the early church did? And the church has for all this time. Pikes Peak hasn't changed in the tradition here, 
and we can always return to kind of our true north. Or if you live in Colorado Springs, I guess it's your true west. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I mean, that's if a person's willing to have that conversation, I guess that's one of the things I want to bring up as people are considering staying in the church or leaving the church. A thought I have is when people claim to have a bad experience with church, I think there's always the issue underneath the issue, which is Hmm. what you're bringing up is going to threaten my autonomy. And ultimately, I know where you're going, which is you're going to want me to hand over the authority of my life to someone else. So I want to bash whatever it is you're coming at me with to make sure I have some level of false protection around me saying that church experience didn't work for me. And I'm mad. But really what I think they're saying is I'm protecting my own autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's such a huge loss in that for you. Totally. Like you can't protect your autonomy without also defeating intimacy and love and mercy and forgiveness. And And the power of the spirit in your life. Yeah. Like like the cost you're paying for that protective autonomy that no one gets to hurt me is that you are shielding yourself from everything good as well. You can't kind of shield selectively. If you're going to put those shields up, it's going to be against everything. And then, yeah, that's a gutted life with God, yeah. you know. And then and then you talk about what does it feel like to be lied to? Well, nobody likes that. <laughs> no one says, yeah, I don't mind being lied to once in a while. <laughs> right. So if you have bought that, lie, John, that you were just talking about, that's right from Satan. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, yeah. You don't You're under the influence yeah. of mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. I mean, it's the, there is an authority at work in your life. Do you want the authority of Jesus Christ, as Rick said, that's been given to us in this amazing tradition of who Jesus is and in his body? Or do you want to put yourself under the authority of you, which I don't want to be under my authority. I can just say way too dependent on chocolate, you know, or even darker forces Mm -hmm. like Satan. And and who is more upset and against the misuse of religion than Jesus? (laughs) Right. Oh, my goodness. A crusader. Sometimes (laughs) people are hurt by the church. Therefore, they're against the church. Therefore, they leave the church. Uh, But. You know what? Jesus is the one that you can go back to and you can get close to because he's your friend. He hates hypocrisy and abuse in religion more than anyone does. Just read the Gospels. Mm. Uh, the established hierarchy of religion in his time is something he critiqued all the time. So he's kind of on your side here. He's the revolutionary. If you want autonomy, He's the one who's weirdly the revolutionary against some of the very things you're probably against. And you could find a real friend in mm-hmm. Jesus And here. others, too. Oh, yes. I mean, I, any of us who really passionately love Jesus, mm-hmm. our heart grieves mm-hmm. when we hear about abuse and mm-hmm. hurt mm-hmm. and things like that that happen in the church. There is nothing that grieves a pastor mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. than when we hear those stories. Yeah. So, Rick, Jonna, when these questions get asked, do you feel like... What percentage of the time do the people who are asking the questions feel like they're getting some level of satisfaction to your answer? I don't know the answer to that, and I'm glad you brought that up because I was wanting to go there next, and that is I need to pray my way into these conversations. I need to take each person on an individual basis. I need to pray into teachable moments when I sense there's an open door, and if there's not an open door, I can't 
assume that every moment is a teachable moment because uh, God is the one who opens doors in these conversations. And when I sense that there's an open door, then I need to be brave and loving and walk in and do it. And when the door isn't open, I can't be in the business of forcing it open with this person because I'm trying to take this relationship that I have with this person really seriously mm-hmm. in all of its complexities and its particularities. Uh, so we really need to be sensitive, I think, to where they are at. And I think we also, Rick, you've always, one of the things you've coached me on is just that we can be, um, we can give ourselves grace too. Yeah. We aren't going to bat a thousand, no. you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to, we're, we're not always going to have all the right things to di- say, and we're not always going to remember all the scriptures and all of this. And so don't, don't put that kind of pressure on yourself. Yeah. I'll end with a note that just got sent to me from a listener. Many people reject Jesus because of bad experiences with religious people. And here's the thing. Jesus had bad experiences with religious people, too. In fact, they <laughs> killed him. People will let you down. Jesus won't. Yeah, that's mm. so good. And Jesus has a heart for people who are struggling. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Thank you so much, Rick and John. Always yeah. great to see you. Great Thanks. to see yep. you, Yeah, Val. Rick Mads and John Afonso have been my guests. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.